Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. So, Af Malhotra again on Straight Talk with Af. We've done a, a marathon run of shows in the last two weeks, and this one is the one that I was looking forward to in particular because um, the, the gentleman I'm going to interview today and have a conversation with is multifaceted, you know, super ambidextrous, multifaceted. And I, I reckon, you know, I've done my homework. He's been through a lot of trauma. Uh, and I think um, it's important to talk about trauma as much as we talk about success and achievements and accolades and all those wonderful things. And I do think because I've been through a lot of trauma, health trauma, life trauma, um, it, it teaches you so many lessons and it makes you the person you are if you choose to learn, learn from those lessons. And I have an author, organizational psychologist, um, fellow, former NBA player. I mean, can you believe that? You know, National ba Basket uh, Basketball Association player, probably the only Briton, but he'll um, he'll clarify and, and tell me otherwise. And a wonderful thinker and an articulate person who's able to, uh, you know, encapsulate a lot of complex concepts and present them to people in ways that most of us can understand. That takes a lot of skill. And he's, he's been taking that message to leaders in global organizations, educating them on the 21st leadership, uh, 21st century leadership models that should be inculcated in their organizations. He's been talking about diversity and inclusion uh, coming from that domain himself. He's admitted many times that he's got it wrong. I watched a few very interesting interviews about him admitting that he shouldn't have said certain things and now he would say them differently. And I love that about him and I love that vulnerability. And there's a lot to learn from this gentleman. And he is, without further ado, John Amici, an OBE from the UK and just a wonderful guy all around. John, thank you for coming on my show. It's it's a pleasure to have you and an honor too. Thank you, Af. Really, I have a lot to live up to based on who you've been talking to already. I will do my best. <laughs> You know, you you are a special, uh, special person. Um, there is so much to discuss, but I must first start with what I believe is most important. And I, I know all my straight talks are about the person before we get into the, the book or the books or the achievements. So for those who don't know you, because this is a global show, mm -hmm. tell us a little bit about your incredible past. I know you've got it in the book and people will read the book and that's 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 fine. The Promises of Giants, The Promises of Giants, The Promises of Giants. Remember that book, go buy it. It's on Amazon. It's right at the back there as well behind uh, John. So you, you'd need to read this. Tell us a little bit about you uh, in the United Kingdom. Tell, tell us about your your story. How did this whole thing happen? Hmm. And how, how did you become a basketball player apart from your stature and, and size, that's one thing. What compelled you to go into basketball? A bit of that journey. And um, how did you end up in consulting uh, and, and advising and writing books? Mm -hmm. So um, give us, you know, you know, you've done this so many times, but a whistle will, stop tour would be amazing. I will do what I can. So yeah. I, I always tell people that the most important thing, if you really want to know who I am, the most important thing to know is that I'm a nerd and a geek and those two things are not okay. the same thing i am a scientist is is who i am and when i grew up when i was growing up um i have been reading since i can remember I, before i could read i was read to on an incredibly regular basis by loved ones and my mother especially mm. i grew up on science fiction um 
I, I loved to read about, especially rich science fiction worlds where they painted pictures of the future that weren't kind of flimsy and yeah. contrived for a particular story, but rather were so rich and vivid and moving that you'd imagined that a thousand different stories could be told. Some of the most mundane stories about relationships or some of the most fantastic stories about exploration could be told all in this future because it was so rich. Um, it's actually called a future history in, in writing. It's called the idea that when you read someone's work about the future, it's so vivid, it's so integrated that you you feel like they're HG Wells and they've gone yeah. to the future, witnessed it and then come back. Yeah. So I had an interest in reading. I, I never considered writing when I was younger because when you're younger, you're taught in school, bad schools. Actually, most schools, unfortunately, that writing is a chore, something you have to do to get a mark rather than something you do because it's joyful to journal and, and write. So I liked pies and uh, and books growing up. That's who I was, pies and books and science fiction. Um, my entire understanding of the world outside of Stockport was probably made up of reading books and watching the A team. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's, yeah. Got... <laughs> that's it. Right? Um, oh, my God. The best thing ever. A team and Knight Rider, two best, right? best experiences ever. Yeah. But totally. it's amazing how it colors your view of the world, right? Because you, you watch an A team and A team and Knight Rider, and you get a picture of America that is scarily accurate in terms of the violence and the gunfire. Yeah. But also muted because nobody gets hurt. You know, the car explodes and then people walk out of it afterwards, whereas that's not what happens. You hit a car at 30 miles an hour. You're probably going to hurt yourself pretty badly. Um, by the time I was 17, I was very embedded in not physical exercise, in doing nothing that made me sweat. I hated physical exercise. I still am not a huge fan. Yeah. And um, and then I discovered uh, basketball, but not for the reasons you'd imagine. I had no interest in the sport. I have no particular interest in the sport now. Um, it's a very good job. but it, And I like being one of the best people in the world at something, which is what being a great sports person allows you. But it's, it doesn't tickle every part of a person, right? It's not yeah. intellectually stimulating to me anyway, even as it is it's physically stimulating. Um, but a man came up to me on the street and asked me if I wanted to play basketball. And I had Greg's steak slices. I don't know. Many of you people won't yeah. know what Greg's is, but it's an amazing. Well, it's it's not proper bakery, <laughs> I mean, but I love it. I yeah. love it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they're they're lovely bad for pies. You lovely pies. They are amazing. Mm. And I had books in the other hand, so I had books under my arm and Greg's Greg's steak slices in my hand. And this man asked me if I wanted. Well, he didn't ask me if I wanted to play court. He, which is really important. He said you'd be great at basketball, and it was the first time. A stranger in public or in private had told me I could be good at something. Mm. And I was intrigued. I think it's an, for me, it's an important lesson because sometimes when we tell people what they should do, when we say, oh, you, you know, you should do this. What we really mean is I have assessed you in this moment and decided that what you are good for is that mm. working in a field, working in a factory, working in the civil service, whatever it is. And it's not that any of those roles are unsuitable in any way. Mm. but it's interesting that we peg people that way but he said that he took he gave me an address to go to I went to that address I walked in a room and everybody ran towards me grabbed me by the arms and dragged me onto this course and and wanted me on their team and it was this 
my heart nearly exploded this wonderful moment of um belonging and often in public people look at me like i am frightening terrifying because i'm six foot nine and i am or two meters eight and 160 kilos i'm enormous mm. and so people are frightened of me as a big black man mm. and these people were not they they saw my potential and showed it to me nice. and that's what made me want to play basketball they told me that the best place in the world to play basketball was the nba and after a 45 minute training session i said i was going to play in the nba and then six years later i was playing in the nba i wow. sent 3,000 letters to America, to high schools, telling them that I'm a six foot nine black boy from, from Stockport. Mm. Can I play on your team? And I got, I, I didn't get 3,000 rejections, but I got a lot of no responses and about 10 or 15 no's and one letter that said, you should, we'll give you a chance. And that was Toledo, wow. Ohio. So I went to Toledo, Ohio, and that was the start of my journey in sport. Wow. Now, I'm going to go back. So high, good thing, good. Science fiction, great. And what was the third thing you said? You Science fiction, pie end? Uh, avoiding exercise. <laughs> <laughs> and, and yeah. yeah, reading. You loved books. And uh, I have two things I want to say to you. Uh, and, and then you talked about the recognition and the natural immediate acknowledgement you got when someone just said, hey, you'll be great at basketball. I just want to share two really quick stories, if you don't mind, because it's a dialogue, right? We're having the first one is um, right now in the world, uh, what is going on? There's a revolution going on in the world at, at so many levels, geopolitically, socioeconomically, uh, from a technological standpoint and so on. It is clear to one of the I have had I've had over a hundred such shows, and one of the consistent themes that comes out is of many is science fiction, and so many incredible authors, thinkers, evangelists, you know, academics, people wise people with wisdom like you have said, you know, you can do a bunch of things. One of the things you should do is read science fiction. So you were doing that way before. And you'd be surprised how that shapes your thinking, the way you speak, the way you uh, systemize, the way you program things in your mind, the way you process. So you were already ahead of the curve. And then the only small, you know, very minutiae story is I do a lot of diversity, equity, inclusion work. I run a whole think tank using AI. It's like the intersection of AI and social impact around DEI. And I was trying to figure out, because I love science fiction, but I didn't read a lot of it when I was young. I watched a lot of it, like Star Trek and so on. And I try to figure out how I think science fiction um, and DEI come together. And it was because of Star Trek, when Captain Kirk, and in fact, then Jean-Luc Picard, if you've ever watched it, had this commander, Riker. He he was in a living living relationship with a an alien, essentially right? Who wasn't human, but he found her attractive. And, you know, maybe they, they had a kid or something together at some point. And I was like, wow. So people from different parts of the world who looked unlike us, um, we find them attractive. And therefore all those judgment barriers, perceptions, probably at some point are going to go, right? And so I've held, I've held on to that for like when I was, like, when I was 13 or 14, I watched that um, that version of, of Star Trek. And so that was my relationship with, with DEI, science fiction, Star Trek. And then you talked about recognition. I played the tabla, the Indian uh, drums, the, the ones at the back there. 
And I, I actually didn't like them. I hated them. And I was like, whatever, who cares? I've, I have better things to do. And then one fine day I had to play in this concert. My sister used to sing and my dad was into music and poetry and stuff. Lawyer by profession, but actually loved the other stuff. And I was forced to, at nine, play some tabla at someone's house. And I was like, God, this painful damn thing. And I was whacking it. And I was probably terrible. But all these people were like, wow, he's so amazing. Look at his little hands and his, and he's incredible. And I was like, no one's really given me this sort of recognition. And boom, you know, 30 years later, and I, I've, been, I've done hundreds of shows. I still love it, of course. But anyway, it's more little anecdote just to reinforce your salient points and important points that these small things make such a big difference in shaping your life, your future, your destiny. They do. Um, they they you know? do for sure. Um, the, you know, on the science fiction front, there, yeah. there's, there's interesting schools of thought about why it, why it came about. Because the, the earliest days of science fiction really were around the Industrial Revolution, um, that kind of period. Um, yeah. The atomic scares that occurred. And so science fiction has often been a conduit for exploration of our biggest fears. Um, H.G. Wells' War of the World, mm. the idea that usurpers more powerful than us will land quietly in the night and take over our green and pleasant land. Um, it, it's fascinating when you look at, you know, the, the, the stories about robots and how AI artificial intelligences will we will create them and then they will destroy us mm -hmm. and how will we be saved from that mm -hmm. it's that's the kind of one side of it and the other side is the idea of reimagining a world without the constraints of some of the practicalities of our history you know star trek people say they love star trek but i don't think most people understand what they're loving because it is the universe you'd want to live in. You wouldn't want to live in the Star Wars universe. We're living no. in the Star Wars universe. <laughs> right. A few rebels and yeah. a few gifted people fighting against an entrenched, militarized uh, oppression yeah. uh, in a deeply hierarchical and capitalist society. That's Star Wars, right? right. Credits rule. Whereas you look at the Federation, it's, a, it's a, an institution without money. Yeah. With yeah. status that is earned, a meritocracy. Uh, and I don't think people realize the implications of this for a lot of the systems we have here. Yeah. Uh, do you honestly think people are worried about um, sewage in the water in the Federation? Yeah. As we have here in Britain right now. Do you, do you, do you think utilities, do you, do you think people buy bottled water in the Federation? Do you think there's hunger in the Federation? That you know, It's like, no, these, it's a statement about a future that we could have that people seem to miss because it's yeah. an entertainment form. Yeah, you're bang on. And I, I and I, I love the way you encapsulated that because everything you see or one sees around today, you know, this podcast, the, the, the shows on Netflix, the social media app, the, the Economist article you read, and so on and so forth. There are many messages and meanings that you can take away from all of that stimuli, you know, depending on your frame of mind, depending on purpose, depending on the passion you have for that purpose, depending on your perseverance, depending on your plan and, and so on and so forth. And one of the things I find intriguing about your world and your life, it's, it's been a fascinating journey. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about the upheaval first, and then before we go into the book and then, you know, um, and then of course what you're doing today, which is amazing with APS 
uh, intelligence. And you can see that in, in the background. Uh, there's that moving background. I got educated on how John did that. I'm not going to tell you right now, but it's it's a beautiful secret. So thank you for that, um, John. You know, you've you've seen a lot of setbacks and you you know, I love the way you said I wrote 3000 letters, 3000 letters. That's that's, you know, I'm a sales guy, too. I grew up in sales. That's serious prospecting and grafting. And not much has changed today. I mean, you know, I, with my institution, I had to write multiple letters. I wrote to Prime Minister Sunak. He replied eventually. I wrote to Sir Keir Starmer, but I also wrote another 50 letters. And none of the, the 43, 44 didn't respond, but these important guys did. Even today in your life, one has to graft. You have to work hard. You have to persevere. Um, you've done it in so many different facets of your life. First, can you just take me through some of the, the hardest, most sort of distressing parts of your life and just tell me how you managed to get through them? It'd be really interesting to know what you've learned from those various traumatic events. So I will be controversial right off the bat and tell you okay. this, that as, as a psychologist, I used to be a marriage and family therapist. Yeah. And uh, uh, and now even as an organizational psychologist, I would tell you that any lesson learned through trauma can be learned another way that is less harmful to the individual. Yeah. And I know a lot of people don't believe that. They think I am this because of that. And and I, I would be soft or somehow less powerful or good or knowledgeable or wise if I hadn't been so deeply scarred in the past. Mm. I don't believe that. So I I lost my mother when I was in my 20s. Mm. I was in America. Um, my, my university flew me back overnight and I was with her for three days before she died. And then I flew back to America and got back to playing games. Mm. Um, it was incredibly difficult. Um, how did I get through that? I continue to work through that. I have a therapist and I continue to work through the loss of someone who is, if you read anything, either of the two books that I've written, you will see that she runs through them. She mm. just runs through them. My wisdom is borrowed mm, more than anything else. And lots of it from her and lots from other people. And But that's that's a loss that I could have done without and I could have been great without <laughs> and sometimes i wonder how much better i would have been with just the right advice from that person i could mm. trust implicitly at the right time yeah beyond that you know there are sacrifices that i have made i uh, you know whilst i am a, a grandfather because i adopted i don't have i don't have biological children and i mm. don't have a relationship as a 53 year old um, in large part because I focus on other things and put them in priority. And certainly the sporting career didn't allow me to have the life that many other students would have right. <clears throat> in university and, and then in the early days of my career. So there's, there's lots of small things I would I can look to that I'm like, yeah, these were really difficult. I remember being, <clears throat> I mean, uh, I've been cut from more basketball teams I've been I've, I've I've been not selected at important times I wasn't drafted something that was devastating at the time I remember walking around outside just being devastated when I didn't end up being chosen by the NBA and had to go through a, a very circuitous process to get there so there's been lots of those 
but luckily I was gifted by my mother and by my education mm. with mm. tools that have helped me to navigate it. But we often forget this with, with resilience is something you shouldn't have to be most of the time. It should be incredibly episodic and right. resilience is always accompanied by a loss of performance potential. You are resilient by using energy that might otherwise be used for high performance to keep you alive. Mm. And so mm. you are still doing your job and you're still, many of us are so good at what we do. We can still get by and others might not notice, but we're still not at our performance peak. And then we return to that peak. And the, the time it takes to return to that peak is due to skills that you have inherently and the support that you experience externally. And I'm really fortunate that mm. I have been gifted skills learn skills and i've always had a tremendous support network of my my two sisters my what i call my cabinet um something i talk about in the book the idea that you build around your group of people who are yes friends but more than friends they are also there to deliver harsh truths and supportive shoulders at the right time mm. that's how i've survived Mm-hmm. I, I, uh, I talk about this concept of making friends with uncertainty. That's like my message. And I've been thinking a lot about how do you make friends with uncertainty? And I figured out that certainty allows me to make friends with uncertainty. Now, what does that mean? For me, certainty, as you describe it with your cabinet, is my support structure. So when everything's falling apart, literally, and it's all falling apart and it's awful, and I'm, I've found the, the power and the resilience to keep going... I do need to go home to my partner, my family, whoever, my close ones, and they make me feel secure. And they do both. You know, you you, you don't just get revered and recognized. They also lambast you and say they ground you. You know, after a really amazing day, you won some awards. You come home and you're like, pick up the milk on the way. It's like, yeah, you know, exactly right. I'm a musician, right? So when I go for my gigs, I perform and I'm feeling like a hero and people are like, oh my God, you're so amazing. And then I get minnows like my wife's like, hey, listen, uh, the kids have to do this and you got to do it. I was like, oh, great, fantastic. Back to reality. But that is so important to, to keep us grounded and level-headed. I'm sure you've seen that in your life. Can I ask about, if you don't mind me asking you this, because I've lost my, my I lost my father when I was 20. And um, totally unplanned pancreatic cancer died in two weeks. And that was traumatic. It, take, it takes a long time. It, 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 why, you know, when they say time's a healer, it's the time's actually not a healer. It's, it's the stuff you do in that time to either be distracted for a while or get engaged yep. in another project. And, and you're bang on with the therapist. So, you know, by the way, whoever's listening here and it's taboo in your culture, or you think, oh my, I'm just so fine myself please go out and speak to someone, call them a therapist, a counselor, a coach, whatever, have them with you all the time, because I'm, I don't know how you feel, but it's been life changing for me. I think, you know, if you have the means, yeah, then you should use a, a therapist, you should use a coach, you should find someone whose yeah. job is to listen to you. It's, it's part of what makes psychologists uh, as a practice, practicing psychologist, what makes us important. Very few times you have a conversation with somebody where there is no expectation of reciprocation. Right. Normally, even with good friends, I come to you, Af, and I say, oh, 
you won't believe the day I've had this happen, this happen, this happen. And then at some point that same evening, you're going to say, oh, you think that's bad. This is what happens to me. And that it's an important part of building a friendship, this reciprocation. But it yeah. also means you can't do the solid work of simply throwing stuff on a table, knowing yeah. that there will be no crowding of that table with other information. Somebody else is simply going to say, I saw you say this. Let's talk about that piece. I heard you say this. Is that really right? And they're going to have a, and that's what a coach would do, counselor, whatever. If you have the means, then I think it's incredibly important to do that. If you have the means and you can provide that means for others, I yeah. think it's incredibly important that you do that. Mm -hmm. um, because I think it's amazing how many people listening to this will be big fans of sport. And so they'll understand that no matter how good you get, you'll always need a coach. And that coach will change as you graduate over time, but you'll always need a coach. So it isn't a sign of weakness. And the same is true for counseling or therapy. It's not a sign of weakness. It is a sign of strength. I don't want to be distracted on every front by having to fight on every front. There are fronts I have to fight on where I am the expert. Yeah. And those are normally in the relation to the work that I do. Hmm. But stuff about me that I want to resolve, I shouldn't be a battle I have to fight alone. And so that's what I do. I think that's 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 vital for us. Mm, you're bang on it's nicely put actually and i like that analogy with the sport because you are right people tend to forget that when they think about sport they think about coaches and and uh, all these experts surrounding the the sports person and then when it comes to life we we don't give ourselves that credit it's a little bit it's a little bit like i have two little children i had them much later in my life a four and a half two and a half and they've been a huge lesson for me and when we have kids you you tend to use this term as parents like she's going through a phase He's going through a phase. He's just going through, a, not eating pasta, but eating this, going through a phase. Hey, what about us? Like, what about adults? We go, we go through phases. Why don't we say, Af's, John's just going through a phase. Af's just going through a phase. Because we're so, we're not, we, we are quite cruel to, to, to ourselves. And I think you said this in your book, like, um, I don't know, I forgot, I forget the term you use, but I think essentially you're saying, hey, just be kind to yourself. Maybe your mom gave you this lesson. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's vital. It, it, the idea that what we should do is to view ourselves critically, but not cruelly. That's the point. Critically, not cruelly. That's Critically, right. yes. but not cruelly. That's what we're yeah. supposed to do. Yeah. It, I think it's really important because oftentimes you'll find people, sometimes it has a cultural element to it or a religious element to it. Yeah. Uh, sometimes it just happens to be the way that people operate. But I, I, I carry no interest in humility, for example. Um, I'm not interested in arrogance either, mm. but, what one of the cruel things we do is we focus a lot of us focus very deeply on the the gaps in our expertise the challenge areas to be the development areas for improvement but what we don't do is focus on what we do really well oftentimes some of it's lucky my brain does some stuff really well that i have not really worked on i'm mm. just incredibly genetically lucky in this one dimension it also has a ton of stuff i do really poorly and that's also genetic in in its in its etiology but there's stuff I've really worked on to be great at. And to deny that would be a cruel lie in nobody's service, right? If if you ask me, you know, so are, are you good at, uh, you know, public speaking? And I said to you, yeah, I'm all right. That's not true. I am really good at it because mm -hmm. I've worked really hard on it right. because I've studied the tenets of storytelling because I understand how to use my voice purposefully to try and move and lift and help people change that's what i want to do with it 
Yeah. To say, yeah, I'm all right is a lie. And we shouldn't do that. We shouldn't lie about things that we can't do, that we say we can. And we shouldn't lie about things that we can do, that we say we can't. Either of those are lies, and that's bad. Mm. And that's not that's part of not being cruel as well. Yeah, mm. identify your, your weaknesses and your areas for development and all that, but also identify your strengths. It's part of being the fully rounded you. And to harken back to our conversation about resilience, it helps you be more resilient when you understand what you are, what assets you're bringing to the table. Yeah, bang on. And it's, it comes back to the whole idea of, you know, valuing yourself and the strengths that you actually um, are proud of. Um, and most most time, we actually don't think about what we're really good at. We focus on what we're not so good at. So the, the deficiencies, you know, um, the weaknesses, the chinks in the armor. Uh, you're bang on. It- and we still we still do it, though, John. We still yeah. this is like years and years of management books and training. We're still having this conversation because it's a problem. Yeah, one one of the first exercises we do with leaders, um, um, whether they're in our kind of giant community or whether yeah. they're just our clients, is we we talk to them about ten things that are brilliant about me. You've got to okay. write me a list of ten things that you're brilliant right. at. Yeah, utterly brilliant at, and then we give them some guidance. Right, so these are objective things. They are real things. They're not just conjecture that you're making up. They, we usually prefer it if they're validated. You've got some evidence to suggest that you're why you're good at them or you, that you are good at them. And then they're they're tangible and objective and and uh, condensed. Like there are a couple of sentences. So because that way you're actually building something really useful for interview. It's really, it's really fascinating. Or, or when you're trying to describe yourself, when you're trying to attract a team around you, when you can let people know, here's the stuff that I'm really good at, and, and you'll see how it complements the stuff that you're really good at. Correct. That's how you can build a cohesive part of how you can build a cohesive team. But I think it's just, it's revelatory for some people. This, this woman in our group, she's a great leader herself, but she was talking about how I, I have an ability to build relationships across differences that become truly authentic. And and that allowed an exploration that that one couple of sentences allowed an exploration to the skills that she's bringing to bear on that. So that one thing out of a list of ten mm. suddenly bore about ten other things that were true that made her so good at that. So yeah, you know you, your 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 ability to to read faces, your ability to, this in, incredible list of assets and skills falls out of it and helps a person to see themselves perhaps more well roundedly than they might otherwise. Yeah, I like that. It's so simple, but so powerful. The 10 things that you're really good at with some evidence, concrete and, you know, compact. Love it. We should all do that. We should do it regularly, in fact, because one forgets. Yep, you forget. And it changes over time. You you suddenly realize you suddenly realize you've been faced with a new set of challenges, perhaps through, you know, COVID that we've all been through. Yeah. I go from being this massive person who has huge in-person presence because I am huge alone, not because of any skill, right. to having to have impact this way. Yeah. And so there's a whole new set of skills that I learned in order to do that as effectively as possible. Now, I have no idea if I don't think I'm as effective this way as I am in person, but still pretty damn good. And that's something I worked on. So you can suddenly reprioritize or look at your list again uh, and and get that better understanding of how you're evolving over time yeah what a good point i like that i like that because you had to shape shift you've shape shifted so you've taken your charisma your your superpower which is your physical presence as much as it's all of the other assets that you have now you're limited this to, to this square or rectangle on zoom 
And so how have you played with that? And of course, and I think one big lesson is that even the best of us, i.e. in your situation, you could be a master at something, you're constantly evolving. You've got to shapeshift, you've got to adapt to the situation. Who knew that you'd have to deal with COVID? Right. And everything had to go remote. And now look at you. I mean, you've got a cool, you've got to, I've learned something today. You've got an awesome setup there. So tell me about this. So let's shift gears a little bit. So let's, um, let's focus on, you know, leadership. Like, so now you are, you've APS, you've got APS intelligence and uh, go on to the, so the, the website for everyone's benefit, sorry, um, John is. It is APSintel.com. I will warn you right now. Yeah. That, um, we have not done any work. on. We're currently redoing the website. We have not done any work on that website for about six years, which anybody in business knows is bad practice. But we've okay. been really focused on doing great work and not okay. focusing on our website. Fine. But it will. It will be changing in the next few weeks. You will see okay. a brand new, simpler and more elegant version of APSintel.com. Okay. So don't judge the business by the Don't website, judge us on our terrible website is the message. <laughs> Yeah, got it. Don't worry, you're not the only one. I was speaking to one of my past guests who will remain nameless. Uh, was a CEO, he's the CEO of a very large um, company, very large business that you will probably know of. And he just became CEO four or five months ago. He's a brilliant CEO. He was a CEO for, of another large company. And I said, duh, 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 duh. what's the website? He said, this is a website, but let me just tell you, we're, we're, de we're redeveloping the website. I said, okay, okay, fine. Um, tell us a little bit about, you know, you've been training leaders over the past decade or so you've been uh, sharing your wisdom your knowledge you've been inspiring you've been writing books and on the whole you've created a shift haven't you at least with the people that you've influenced and met with and are your clients from in terms of the business tell us a little bit about um i want to get to the point around leadership because the audience is pretty well-versed we're all academics or we all authors and so on. so they'll get it pretty quickly mm -hmm. talk us through um the big shifts you're seeing that a you're really happy about and b you're not so happy about so you're a little bit sad or depressed about so what are the big positive things you're seeing in leadership changing uh and you know you can take examples case studies uh, sector agnostic but generally leaders ceos people who are leading enterprises what is what what makes you feel hopeful uh, and then obviously the opposite too so what makes me hopeful is that if you look and, and i think this is important too uh, yeah. leadership has not changed because of covid the okay. changes in the workplace the future world of work as it as it is starting to manifest has been has been on its way for a long time right yeah. it's been on its way for a long time but if you are you familiar with the wayback machine yeah. It's a, you can look at Brilliant. people's websites a few yeah. years ago. So we yes. do this with a lot of our, our clients. And, um, and when you do that, you suddenly realize that how people talk about their organizations has become more human. Good it point. has become yeah. distinctly more yeah. human. The kinds yeah. of things that they're willing to say, and more importantly, for the promises of giants, the promises that they make are more explicit and profound. What the the, the problem with that is. So that's really good because you, you go on websites and you invariably see on the careers page, mm. um, are people a family? By the way, anybody listening to this, do not talk about your colleagues as if they're family because they're not family because you fire them. Uh, they're not <laughs> family because you pay them. They are 
close, yeah. authentic colleagues, and we should just stick to that. But stick to that. Yeah. They talk yeah. about family. They talk about second family. They talk about managers who'll take a fulsome interest in your career, and just think about what that means. And this is the problem with these new promises. It is that they come with a set of cascading implications that we're not considering. If you have a phrase on your website that says your manager will take an interest in your career, there are some prerequisites to that. Mm -hmm. Your manager has to have coaching skills because that's essential. You can't just take an interest. It's not, we're not talking about having a couple of years, a couple of times a year in appraisal. I give you a number and you think that's it. Mm -hmm. You want me to talk to you about careers and how it works. And is it here? Is it somewhere else? What skills do I need to develop? You need to know a little bit about the future world of work because if you're in some industry, you could finance right now. It used to be that being a business analyst was a route to the top, and now it's essentially a dead end Correct. For, for people entering the business. You just yeah. can't get to the top. And now it's more people working in analytics and technology and fintech and other areas inside of large workplaces. Yeah. So all of these shifts are happening. So your manager takes an interesting career, has this huge implication. Mm-hmm. That's the kind of thing I think we need to consider. Your manager's a coach. Are we giving our people the skills to make that happen? All of these promises, one of the things we do, we do an audit of people's websites to look at, even though ours is terrible, to look at the promises they make, to say, look, this is just one of your pages on your website. You've got five promises on here. Let's look at what this means for your utilization culture, for for you insisting that people spend 87, 90% of their time doing billable stuff. Does that follow with a learning culture? Is that that how that works? Uh, Let's look at, you say that you are flexible and you're interested in, in a diverse workforce, mm. but you insist that everybody's in the office every day. Is that is that compliant? Does that work? That's the that's the good and the bad of this future world of work. There's been these massive shifts. Uh, in 2011, I wrote this document about the changes in the workplace. So this is way before we were talking about AI, way before we were talking about uh, the pandemic. But it's this idea that we're moving away from transactional resource management and moving into authentic people leadership. So what are the skills required for that? We're moving away from hub working, everybody living within two hours of a central city location where they work. And we're now into spoke working and now dynamic and asynchronous working, right? Right. We're moving away from utilization cultures. Operating our businesses on the basis of how we bill is shifting because job roles are shifting radically. Um, You probably saw that McKinsey study 2016, uh, 75 to 375 million job roles globally will change between 2016 and 2030. You can't be a utilization culture and survive that. Mm -hmm. You've got to be a learning culture. What does that mean for billing? What does that mean for the number of hours you're allowing for people to do proper active study to learn new roles? And that's the piece that I think is great. There's these all these opportunities, and yet you still have a bunch of people out there who think that the, the, the present is tied to the past with a bungee. And it's only a question of time before workers go back to being compliant drones who do as they're told, who don't care if they're being told to be in the office every day. And I keep telling people, the ship has sailed. It's over. And anybody who wants that traditional must-wear-a-tie, must-wear-black-shoes bollocks has yeah. lost. Mm-hmm. And it's a good thing, by the way, that they've lost. Yeah. You so you touched on some really important points. So the good stuff is new promises, good promises. They sound great. The scarier stuff is can you actually uphold, live up to these promises? Have you actually thought that through? I want to dig into people for a moment, if you don't mind. So uh, let's think about the uh, let's think about leadership. You know, you talk about way back. Okay. Let's imagine if there was a way back of people. 
for a second. Uh, that would be a little bit shocking and worrying because some some of those people are still floating around in these organizations, depending on how way back you go. And I'm not going to say they're old white men. That's not fair, but because uh, they could be all sorts of people. But I said it. Here you go. Uh, but a lot of people who are in these board roles in certainly the Nasdaq listed companies that you know I study, we study have been floating around for a long time, if not as CEO, then as chair, if not as chair, then a Ned on the board or something else, right? Um, one of the things I've seen, and I'm sure you've seen this, is that you could have the biggest and the strongest campaign and uh, we're all sort of ground up or making it happen. You know, your, your commanders in chief, everyone's making it happen. But it could take that one or maybe two individuals who would derail the whole damn thing. Okay. And I mean, at senior level, and I'm not convinced that's changed enough because if it was, if it, if it really had changed enough, those promises that you've just talked about, and then, oh my God, are you upholding those promises? I wouldn't be shaking my head and nodding my head like everyone else watching this saying you're bang on. You're right. Uh, we haven't thought through that stuff. Have we tell me a little bit about your personal experience around um, the dinosaurs or the rigid, I call them the rigidites as opposed to the Luddites, who are kind of rigid, those who ha are still kind of hoping for that, that nice bungee example you gave. Are, are we, do, do you feel with your experience, we're seeing less of them now, thankfully, for loads of reasons, or you're not convinced that they, that that system has, has been dis displaced or distorted or disrupted? So, so they still exist in, in large numbers, but yeah. It is not the strong, and they are the, some of the strongest people in terms of their power and presence, but we exist today, you and I, the people yeah. listening to this, we exist today because of the fact, not the conjecture, that the strongest does not prevail. Okay. Not only does it not prevail, it has never prevailed. We are, we wouldn't be here if that was the case. We'd be reptilian. Yeah. Oh, yeah. some well, actually, dinosaurs aren't reptiles, but anyway, it, we would be that ilk. But for every strongest, there is a stronger. Sometimes that stronger is another creature. Some sometimes it's a set of organisms, and sometimes it's a meteor. But it's always something. Hmm. So these people, you know, we have to wait for them to pop their clogs and gently walk off this mortal coil. And they'll be noisy the whole time, clattering and making a nuisance of themselves until they do. But it is the most adaptable of a species that survive, not the strongest. So if you want to thrive, if you want your organization to thrive, what you focus on is agility and adaptability and the cultural and leadership characteristics that make that happen. Now, we've asked, we've done, because we're nerds, we've done a bunch of research asking people about this and what, what matters. So I'll get you to, I'll get to show you some cool stuff now, hopefully. Nice. You will think okay. this is cool stuff. So okay. we ask people, what are the words that describe uh, what it took for you to be a leader in the past? What, what people thought made a credible leader in the past? And by the way, many of these leaders were exactly what you'd imagine as the old and crusty, even though mm -hmm. they're not. But you'd look at them and you'd imagine straight white men, many of them, because the majority of leaders are straight white men in the NASDAQ, in the FTSE. Sure. So we asked, what are these characteristics that matter? And they said this. Mm -hmm. They said this, charisma, confidence, experience, loud, assertiveness, qualifications. You'll see male is in there prominently. Mm. 
So all of these things mattered to people. And they said these were the things, and it's not what these individual leaders said was important, but it's what they said other people really thought was important. Look, gift of the gab, assertive assertiveness is in there really strongly everywhere. And it's not that all of these characteristics are bad, right? Some of these are useless, are useful, sorry, but there's also things like ruthless and hubris and and stuff in here that just doesn't matter. Like in a world where job roles are shifting as fast as they are, is the qualification you got in university 20 years ago really that important today? Mm. Or are other things that you might have learned in university important instead? And then I asked the same group of people, all right, so not in the past and not in the future. I was really really strict with this. This is not as a response to the pandemic, but what characteristics do you think are really important now mm. for leadership? What are the, the, what are the qualities that make you an effective leader? And all of a sudden they said this, vision, empathy, emotional intelligence, kindness, honesty, flexibility. There's still accountability and, and competence building and adaptability and pragmatism and innovation and selflessness, collaboration, transparency. This is a picture of leadership in the future. This is what's going to help us to thrive through disruption. This is the thing that's going to matter, not that nonsense that we were that we were seeing in the first one. This is the future. So when you think about the promises made on most of those websites, it's not the first picture. It's yeah. the second picture is the leader who's going to fulfill Correct. those promises. And we just got to keep that in mind, help people to realize that when you ask young people, emotional literacy, approachability, that is not always being available. Young people are not stupid. They know that senior leaders are not always available. But the idea that you're not too frightening to approach. Correct. The idea that you are trustworthy, because many senior leaders, they worry about the trust that they can have in other people. And they don't worry about whether they themselves are trustworthy. Mm. Boris Johnson, mm. et al. Mm. A coaching approach, supportive, empowering, clarity and direction through disruption. One of the most important things. The vast majority of leaders under-communicate even though you are 10 times more likely to be criticized for under-communicating than over-communicating. Yes. This is it. This is it. Yes. So, so here's, um, here's another piece that's really important. Now we're talking about young people. Um, and it's a bit of a thought experiment, but it's also a little bit scary. So it's not, it's not a nice thing, but it's important that I raise it with you because of you know, the vast experience you've got. The World Health Organization <clears throat> released its recent report. I think it was 2023 earlier this year. It's a thick, fat report, 70, 75 pages. And um, if you cut through all of it, it's got some data points, a lot of scary, awful data points, one of which is one in three teenage girls are clinically depressed today, and they expect that number to, to rise. I mean, it's only going to go in one direction. Uh, one in six adults are cl clinically depressed based on, again, what we tell the survey uh, folk, right? I mean, sometimes people lie. It happens a lot. And this whole area of mental health, mental wellness, um, it's a bit of a concern for especially, you know, the generations to come. You know, my kids are Gen Alpha, but the Gen Z are really going through a tough, tough, tough time. And I feel for them. And um, I wanted to get your perspective on that, because, of course, you know, you're, you're coaching all sorts of people and leaders of all sorts uh, of backgrounds and different demographics. What is your view on this? Because it worries me. And I think we, we need to do something about it. Otherwise. Um, we wouldn't have done our job effectively. So we are in a mental health crisis. 
but that's because there, there are actual things happening to make us be in a crisis. Yeah. You can remove COVID entirely from the equation. I am sure that there are knock-on effects from COVID in terms of certain generations and certain ages of young people profoundly impacted by the isolation, loneliness, and just general weirdness that they perceived mm. in that environment. There'll probably be a generation of even younger kids who, whilst they didn't know what was going on, they've grown up in an environment where some parents became so fastidious about cleanliness that their immune systems will be compromised because part of the benefit of being a kid is that you get your hands in all kinds of nonsense and you end up getting quite sick as a kid on a regular basis which means you get less sick as an adult. So there's probably something happening there. But in terms of the mental health, our workplaces are punishing. Our leaders, leaders are the primary source of, of this pain because our direct line managers are 70% of the variance of the experience of most work, people in workplaces. So if your leader is bad and disinterested and disengaged, if they are didactic and, and tyrannical, if they are emotionally illiterate and they care about you only in the dimension of you as a widget of productivity, then of mm. course your brain's going to be wounded. Your psyche is going to be wounded by this. Mm. Of course. If you go to work and school hungry, whether it's work hungry because so your children eat or school hungry because mm. your family has no means, then that's going to have a profound impact on you because you know that you're living in a society in a G7 country in Britain mm where you aren't fed, where there are more food banks than McDonald's has a psychological impact, whether you are the person who uses them or not, you suddenly realize this is the world we're in. This is the country we are. One where people, good people who work hard in undesirable jobs often can't afford to feed themselves. This has a psychological impact on everybody. The problem of mental health is one that is multi-agency in its solution. It is about addressing policing. It's about addressing social care. It's about addressing healthcare and ensuring those are sorted. It's about addressing education and moving away from this ridiculous didactic learning by rote environment and instead mm. entering a critical thinking, emotional, liter emotional literacy-based environment. Right. It's moving in workplaces to a skills-based assessment. Stop looking whether they went to Oxford or Cambridge. It doesn't matter. Um, and start looking at what skills do you have and how adaptable are they to the future? Because that's what really counts. Right. And all of these things could contribute to better mental health for those in work. Mm. And when you improve that, you improve the mental health of entire families. Because if you are wounded and have difficult mental health issues mm. when in work, that will have an effect on everybody else around you, your partners, your loved ones, your family, uh, your roommates and housemates. Mm. 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 Beautifully put. I'm going to ask you, because we're running out of time, but you know, we, you and I can talk for hours and we will uh, when we meet face-to-face, because -face, I do want to meet you face-to-face -face, where we haven't met. Um, I, want, I would love you to wear three hats, if possible, and we'll skip through each hat. So the first hat is um, the, uh, the, the pessimist. Okay, I'll give you the scenario in a moment. So the pessimist. The second hat is the realist. And the last hat is the optimist. <clears throat> and the scenario is related to what you, you love, which is the future of leadership, the future of enterprises, the future of how I wake up in the morning and I'm like, yeah, thrilled to go to work or whatever it is that I do. 
and the future of all of the things that you know we talk about employee engagement diversity equity inclusion this new this new world like this renaissance this, that's like the very positive way of putting it i'd like you to first give me the real sort of pessimistic view of what's the worst that could happen then the realist and then the optimist I feel bound to tell you that I'm a scientist and, and therefore a skeptic. And that's not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing. A skeptic so. is a person who looks at the evidence. If I was, and so for me, all of these views intertwine simply because what's likely to happen is that the cycle of denigration of those different from some prototypical norm will increase. It will increase and people will die and children will go hungry and families will perish. Mm. Um, mothers and fathers will kill themselves uh, because of their desperation and children will be left needing care. They will enter care and be in the most terrible of environments. And we will enter this space knowingly as a society. And then the rebellion will occur. And it may, may not be a, a violent rebellion, but a rebellion nonetheless will occur mm -hmm. where people who have walked sleep-like into this state will suddenly find themselves the target, whether it be politicians being removed or rich people finding themselves, you, you know, without the ability to employ people, whatever else, withholding of labor and protests and whatever else, they'll find themselves the targets of people who will say enough enough of us have died and it won't be simply the the case of you know george floyd or or, or mm. somebody else being being murdered as an individual we're talking about this becoming right now there are children in britain dying uh, showing up at hospitals i used to work in right. the nhs for a decade mm. there are children now showing up to hospitals with scurvy showing up oh to God. hospitals children who go to school who have parents who work who are showing up with scurvy and showing up with malnutrition, not because their parents are abdicating the responsibility, but because their job pays so little mm. and their housing is so expensive that that's all they've got. And so that that can only sustain for so long before an explosion of some sort occurs mm. and righteous indignation takes place. That's what's likely to happen to me. Workplaces are going to suddenly realize that they aren't family and they can't fool people into that anymore. And what's going to happen, this, this this thing that's been occurring of quiet quitting, I think it's one of the most ridiculous phrases out there. <laughs> it's, it's what we used to call doing our job, right? Yeah, you pay me to work correct. this many hours and I do this many hours. If you want pro-social behavior from people, if you want discretionary effort, then your job has to be more than a transaction. Right now, right. a lot of workplaces are trying to make it back into a transaction. Be in the office. Mm. I want to watch you work. Mm. Um, you know, operate a certain way. What you're going to find is people withhold labor. That's going to continue to a point where most businesses can't operate because we all know that most businesses don't operate with the number of people they need to do the job. They rely on people doing more than their job to make that business work. Mm. People aren't going to do it anymore. Mm. So suddenly there's going to be this crisis of not enough people. We're seeing it now, right? Mm. Mm. And people aren't going to be persuaded to do more than that. This is what I think is going to happen. The pessimist in me says that's going to, if I have to do, use that approach, says it's going to happen in the next decade. Um, the realist in me hopes that the backlash begins earlier and with more powerful people 
and that a change in government in Britain, for example, and a change in uh, our sensibilities about human dignity could occur in the next three to five years and and forge a change that would be deeply inconvenient for people like me who are rich. Mm. Um, But it would be deeply inconvenient, but the right thing to do. Um, And that's what I hope. The optimist tells me, says that, well, I know this is not going to happen, but the optimist in me tells me, says that that tomorrow there'll be a story of a young child who kills themselves because of their persecution, because of who they are, or there'll be the story of a, a, a young boy or girl who dies in their seat at school because they have been malnutrition for so long, and that is the outrage that changes everything. Mm. But we've watched too many people die with nothing happen. There's, there's an author, I forget their name, but they said of America, many people think that the gun deaths that happen on such a regular basis in America will eventually cause the change right. in the policy. And this author, I think, quite correctly pointed out that that hope died with the first shooting. When Columbine, or the one that happened just before Columbine, happened and no laws were changed, that's when the chance of change ended. Because if you look at Scotland mm. and the United Kingdom, if you look at Australia, it took one event right. and the policy changed. All right. uh, America's had more than one mass shooting for every day of this year. It's never going to change. And that's the mm. realist. Mm. 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 Thank you for answering that. And um, it's something it's something to reflect on and to think about. And it's an important way to sort of close the show before you go and before i say thank you to you um any words in terms of the experience over the last hour how have you felt um any encouraging words for us to keep going and uh, I, do. I always like to ask my my guests what they think i i do um i i don't know if i have encouraging words but i have words that i think are important for people to hear um you may think I am dour and defeated listening to this. Right. And I am not. I am a Jedi. I am one of the leaders of the rebellion, mm. and I will continue to be so. Um, for those of you who are powerful, disproportionately so because of your title, your experience, your wealth, your role in a, in a big workplace, and for those of you who are just starting out or consider yourself or are told that you are menial and small. I need to tell you that the answer is you. If there is to be change in this society, we need to stop talking about the next generation or it's the young people, some distant future generation. It's some yet to be discovered iconic future leader or politician. We need to stop talking about that. And you need to look in the mirror now because it's you. And I don't mean the collective, everybody who's listening to this. I'm not, I don't mean the collective people in your business. I mean, just singular you, not we, not them, you. Every single day, the people listening to this, you, you will have an interaction with somebody that is so inconsequential to you that you will not forget it two minutes later. But that interaction will ripple out into the life of that person because you chose well to make them feel seen and heard, if only for a fraction of a moment, if only as you look them in the eye, as you 
tapped your card and got in return your coffee. These things, and you said thank you, and you remember their name. These things ripple out into people's lives and make differences that are profound. Somebody once told me that if you're a leader, your direct report's children will know your name and they'll know you either as the person who makes their loved one, their parent or carer feel sad or scared or angry or frustrated or stupid, insecure, even worse, invisible. Or they'll know you as the person who challenges and supports their loved one, who makes them feel capable and confident and high-performing, who helps them to see their potential reflected back at them. This is the choice we have. You want to make a difference? It's you. Mm. Superb. It is you. And so, John, thank you so much for giving me your time on Straight Talk with Af. Again, uh, what a wonderful 60 minutes. And uh, we're going to meet. We're going to talk. We're going to do something together here. And uh, God bless you. Keep going. Be the Jedi that you were born to be. And uh, I certainly am going to put up, pick, pick up my lightsaber from 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 here. It's probably, I probably have a toy lightsaber, which is like my daughter's or something. And, um, you know, take care of yourself and stay in touch with us. And I'll get you back on the show. Ah, there we go. There we go. There we go. That's what I was looking for. And I'll get you back on the show, I guess, whenever you write the next book or you've got the next big thing that you want to discuss or when the website gets updated, I'll get you back on the show. Finally, yes, yes. Yeah. So peace. Thank you so much, my friends. Uh, Look after yourself. Thank you to the audience. Uh, This is Af Malhotra signing off from Straight Talk with with Af and uh, John Amici, my guest today. A great person, great guy, great athlete and a great leader. Thank you. Thank you.